Join me, would you, in your copy of God's Word in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and then verse 31. This morning as we continue our series called Entrusted, a series about stewardship, how we manage the lives that God has given to us today, we look at how we use, how we manage, steward every effort of our lives, every expression of the, the gifts that, uh, and abilities that God has given to us. We'll find today in several passages of Scripture that because our identity is found in, first and foremost, being image bearers of God, that we are then to use who God has made us to be to direct every effort of our lives to His glory. We're going to look at Genesis, we're going to look at a passage in Matthew, we'll look at a passage from Colossians as well. And as we develop this biblical foundation for using every effort of our lives for the glory of God, I would hope that we would seek to bring God glory by infusing every effort of our lives, every every moment of, of our energy, every expression of our strength with supreme love for God and with sacrificial gospel-motivated love for neighbor. I want you to think for a moment about the questions we usually ask people when we meet them for the first time. Normally that introduction goes something like, hi, I'm Stephen, it's nice to meet you. The next question that usually comes out of my mouth or the mouth of somebody who's meeting me for the first time is, well, what do you do? Where do you work? What do you do for a living? as though that was the most important thing about who we are, our name and our job. And yet when we're making small talk and meeting people for the first time, this is where we look for identity, for some way to, to place a person uh, in this world or, or developing some sort of relationship with them, their name and what they do, as if those were the two most important things about them. Scripture teaches us that these are not the most important things about us. And so let us look together at Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 and 27, and then verse 31, to see where our worth really comes from. Would you stand with me as we begin our study of God's Word this morning? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. On the sixth day of creation, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all uh, the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 31 continues, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And be seated. It's incredibly important for us as we think about how we use, manage, steward every effort, every strength, every ability and skill of our lives for the glory of God. First and foremost, to understand that you are worth, that we are worth more than our work. You are worth more than your work. Your worth, your identity is, is found in more than just your abilities, this physical body that we happen to be in, the, the training, the education, the things that, that have gone into making us who we are. You are worth more than that. Your identity is found in more than just what your name is and what you do. Consider what this wonderful passage in Genesis is saying about who we are as human beings. 
On the sixth day of creation, God takes to creating the, what will be the crowning work of his efforts, mankind, humanity. God intends to make man, he says, in his own image and in his own likeness. He says in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. These two words, image and likeness, are really interesting words in the course of Scripture, but especially so here in Genesis chapter 1. That word image comes from the Hebrew word salem, which is used to speak of, uh, of one thing that resembles or points to another. Interestingly enough, this is the same word that is used in other places of the Old Testament to speak of idols and images of false gods. An idol of a false god is a salem of that false god. The implication here in Genesis, though, is that contrary to sinful men who make inanimate images of gods out of wood and stone and gold and clay that look like human beings or other parts of creation, contrary to what sinful people do in creating gods, God has created man in his image as a living, breathing, thinking, acting representation of himself in the world. Now, this does not mean that we are gods or, or that we are quite like God in, in all of his infinite attributes. But when it comes to things like our capacity to make moral choices, when it comes to things like our ability to be creative, to, to, to make things, when it comes to our capacity to love others and desire to live in community, those are things of God that he has implanted into the soul of man as his living, breathing, thinking representation of his glory on the earth. We are made in his image. We're made also in his likeness. This word likeness comes from the Hebrew word demuth, which means visual representation. It can also be used of uh, uh, likenesses of false gods, of gods that do not exist, but that people intend to worship. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18, the prophet says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness shall you compare with him? The context of Isaiah 40 is to condemn the practice of idolatry as, a, as an exercise of foolishness and futility. Instead, it is God who is inimitable. God cannot be imitated. He cannot be created in the image of a, 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 a wood or a stone sort of figure. No one can create anything to resemble him, but he has made man in his likeness. The intent for creating mankind, we read, is to rule over all the created world, over every animal and under uh, all of the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, the livestock over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And the intent for creating man is to rule over the created world in the same way that God rules over all things in the universe. He has given to us a, a portion of his authority to, to use, to steward over the world that he has given to our care. Thus, our work is not our identity, but it is, in God, it is a God-ordained task. You are worth more than your work. Your work does not uh, play a part in terms of identifying who you are in, in, in the sense of, of your essence, of your very nature. And yet, God has given us work as a good thing to do. We see in verse 31, after God creates man and woman in his own image, he puts them to work. And the end result of creation of man in the image of God is that it is good. No more than that, it is very good. 
good in nature and good by nature of the one who has created all things. It is a good thing that we are created in the image of God, in his likeness. We are not some cosmic accident of, of happenstance and time and evolution, as some would like to say, but we are the very handiwork, the craftsmanship of God made in his image to glorify him. Dear friend, understand this from Genesis 1 today. Understand this foundational truth that your identity as a human being is not to be founded upon what you can see. It's not your identity as a human being is not in whether you are a man or a woman. Your identity is not first and foremost in your occupation or your vocation. Your identity is not to to be found primarily in your nationality or your ethnicity or your skin color or your education level. Your identity as a human being is to be founded upon what the eternal, never-changing, almighty God has made us to be, living representatives of his holy character and his glory in the world. That is who God has made you to be. So friend, as we think about stewarding every effort of our lives for the glory of God, first begin by taking comfort in who God has made you to be, his image bearer. God has not, first and foremost, made you to be a plumber or an IT director or a, or a pastor or, uh, or, or a stay-at-home parent. God has primarily made you to be the bearer of his image, his holy character, his, his uh, uh, loving, relational uh, being to the world. We are his representations to the world. Understand, friends, that this is the very purpose for our creation, that we have, each one of us, ruined by our sin. And it's the very purpose of our creation as image bearers of God to to be living representatives of him to the world that he has rescued by his grace. We have ruined it by our sin. He has rescued it by his grace. And he doesn't rescue it by our efforts or by our work. Or should I say that differently? We don't rescue ourselves by our own efforts or by our own work. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10, Paul the apostle says, it is by grace you have been saved. And this not of yourselves, not by, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is a gift of God. Amen. And you are his craftsmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, to do good things. So it's not the effort of our lives that proves our worthiness to God, but it is God's grace to us that we receive by trusting in Jesus, his, his loving gift of forgiveness of sins, that he might rescue our souls to be, the image, to be his image bearers in the way he intended us to be. That gift of salvation we receive simply by placing our lives in the hands of Jesus Christ, submitting to him as king. And in that process, God causes us to be born again. He renews our souls. He gives us new life where there was none before. And in that new life, he makes us to be those who will work for his glory. Not work to earn his favor, but work to bring him glory. And so you see, our work proves nothing to God about our worthiness or our inherent goodness. Rather, we know that because of our sinful nature, we are not inherently good, but we are inherently sinful. There's a common misconception in the world today, and even among some Christians that, that believe that everybody, that human beings are born essentially good. Scripture says the exact opposite. All of us are born essentially sinners. We are born with hearts of sin, hearts that are predisposed to rebel against God. But God, by his grace, 
by his loving and free gift that we receive by trusting in Jesus, his son. He has caused us to have new spiritual life that is free from sin and to find our identity there. Friend, you are worth more than your work. So take comfort in who God has made you to be as his image bearer. By faith in Christ, embrace this, this gift. By faith in Christ, embrace this identity that God has designed you to have. You are worth more than your work. And secondly, we learn when it comes to stewarding our work for God. From Matthew chapter 22, that love sets limits on our efforts. So our, our efforts do not define who we are, but God has made us to do work, to exercise effort in different ways that we have been made able in this life. And as we think about what should I do with the gifts, with the talents, with the abilities, with the education, the training that God has given to me, we look to the two great commandments in all of Scripture to set limits on our efforts, to help us to set boundaries on our work. We find in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34 and going through verse 40, that love sets limits on our work. Here in the last week of Jesus's life, we read this. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in all of the law? Out of all 613 commandments in the, in, in the Hebrew Bible, Teacher, Jesus, which one is the most important? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In these verses here in this last week of Jesus' life, as he's preparing for his arrest and his betrayal, he goes to Bethany to teach there on the Mount of Olives. And during that teaching discourse, he is asked by Pharisees as a trick, what is the greatest commandment in all of the law? The question by this Pharisee lawyer is not genuine. It doesn't come from a genuine heart. He's not really looking to learn from Jesus. But he asks the question anyway, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest effort we can give to God of all the things that he has told us to do? Which is the most important? The Pharisee knows that if this, he is a, being a Jewish lawyer, Jewish teacher, Jewish rabbi, if he can get Jesus to answer the question oddly or, or in some way that they can twist or turn to their benefit, then they can trap him as some sort of heretic or as a fraud and they can dispel his following. And Jesus, in his response, answers with divine wisdom, quoting the law back to this Pharisee. He cites first Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 in verse 37, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If you go back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, you'll read a, a series of, of, of statements about the Lord that the people of Israel are supposed to teach their children. It's a, it's a formula called the Shema, which means the name. And if we go back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll, we'll, we'll just read these verses for the, the sake of our, our mutual benefit here today. Moses, in his, his final exhortation to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy teaches them this. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is a passage of scripture that devout Jews would teach their children to memorize and to live by. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Worship of God is, the first, and, is first and foremost in the life of every person among God's people. And so when the Pharisee asked Jesus, what is the greatest command? What is the greatest thing I ought to do with my life? Jesus says rightly, love the Lord your God with all that you are. Yeah. Love sets limits on our efforts. Love for God, first and foremost, determines what we may do in our work. Love for God determines what we may do in our, in our work. Now, love by nature, we know, is the sacrificial giving of oneself for the benefit of somebody else. Applying this to our work, then, there are virtually limitless occupations and vocations and efforts to pursue in life that can be done with supreme love to God. What love for God prohibits or keeps us from doing are those occupations, those actions that are inherently contradictory to his holiness, are those things that are inherently sinful. You may be a Christian and be a plumber. You may be a Christian and be an attorney. You may be a Christian and be a salesman or a stay-at-home parent or a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You may be a Christian and be a pastor or a zookeeper or a politician or a law enforcement officer. You may be a Christian and love God and do all of those things, but you may not be a Christian and be a human trafficker or a slave trader or a con man or a hitman for the mob, you see? Love for God does not determine what we can do. Certainly, we can live lives of sinful disobedience to him in all that we do, and people do that all the time. But genuine love for God, supreme primary love for God, does determine what as Christians we may do and what we may do unto his glory. As Jesus continues in his conversation with this Pharisee, he goes a step further, doesn't he? The Pharisee asked one question. Jesus gives him two answers. The Pharisee, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, the greatest is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he goes a step further to answer a question that the Pharisee did not ask. What is the second greatest commandment? I love Jesus. He just, he has this way of, of just so graciously sticking it to people in ways that they were not expecting that just turn the whole conversation on its head. And Jesus isn't being a jerk. He's not being rude, but he's sensing the heart of the person who is asking the question. And he gives an answer that, that, that often answers the question they ask, but also answers the question that they're not asking. So Jesus answers the question that he hasn't asked, which is, what is the second greatest commandment? And to this, he answers that it is love to neighbor, neighbor, as well as in the same manner that one loves himself. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus here in saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he's not creating a new law. He's not making something up. He's actually citing from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 which reads, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus rightly notes that of all the 613 numbered and noted commands of the Old Testament, all of them may be kept 
if you'll just keep these two. The individual will just love God supremely and love neighbor sacrificially. You don't have to worry about the other 611 commandments. Yet there are, for the, uh, the Old Testament Jews, 611 other commandments because they struggled so hard to do the first two. Dear friends, we struggle so hard to do the first two also. Praise God that by his grace, he has made us right with him through faith in Jesus. And we're not beholden to the law, but we live lives that are consistent with God's law out of knowing who he is. But in this way, obey diligently. The whole life of the follower of Jesus is bound by love. Do you see? Love first for God and devotion for him, devotion to him. And then second, love for those who are our neighbors. Jesus answers then unequivocally the question of the identity of our neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We'll not read it, but I'll summarize it. You probably know the parable. Young man, another lawyer, comes to Jesus, says, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the guy says, yes, you've answered well, teacher, good job. And Jesus goes a step further again there to say, you shall also love your neighbor as yourself. And then the lawyer responds to Jesus saying, well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells a story about a man who was uh, on his way to a city and he was um, uh, taken and beaten and robbed and mugged and left for dead on the side of a highway. And while he's laying there covered in blood and dust and whatever, Some people begin to pass by and observe this man. The first that uh, passes by uh, is a priest, a priest in the temple. He looks at the man who's beaten and lying there half dead on the ground and looks back up and continues on his way. Then a Levite comes, a a person from the tribe of of Levi, from whom the priests also came, a supposed holier sort of person. And he walks by and he sees this man laying there dead on, uh, half dead on the ground. And he looks up and continues on his way. And then third comes a Samaritan. The Samaritans were those people who, uh, who were the result of uh, Jews who were left behind in the land of Israel uh, some five or six hundred years before when, they were, when the people of Israel were taken into captivity by Assyria and then later by Babylon. The Jews that remained uh, in the, the land of Canaan, they're intermingled and intermarried and had children with people who were not Jews. And so their, their children were sort of uh, half-breeds, if you will. Now, that's not really the nicest way to speak about them, but that's how the Jewish people viewed them. They viewed Samaritans as half-breeds and lesser thans and not so holy type people. And so here Jesus tells this parable, there's a man laying near dead on the side of the road and and two holy people walk by, a priest and a a Levite of all people, and they continue on walking. Then this Samaritan, this half-breed, this enemy of Israelites walks by and he sees this Israelite man half dead on the ground and he picks him up and he cleans his wounds and he puts him on the back of his donkey and he takes him into town and he puts him in a hotel, puts him up in a hotel and gives to the innkeeper all the money that would be needed for the care of this man that he saw half dead on the side of the road. Jesus says to those listening to the parable, you go and do likewise. You go and be like that Samaritan who acted most like the neighbor, the third man, the Samaritan, the one who's an enemy to Israel. Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Supreme love for God determines what we may do in our work. But sacrificial love for neighbor determines how far we should go in our work. 
The parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us that, that knowing that our identity is in being image bearers of God, who have been bought by God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We, we know that the most loving thing we can do for others is to care for them irrespective of where they come from or what they look like or what their background is. Amen. True love for neighbor is sacrificial. It's giving of yourself for the benefit of another, knowing who that person has been designed by God to be as an image bearer. And so friends, the most loving thing, the most sacrificially loving thing that we can do for our neighbors in our work with every effort that we give in our lives is to lead them to Jesus, to know him as Lord, to enter back into, to enter, to be rescued from a life of sin, to enter into the life of an image bearer that God has designed for them to, to, to live. Love for God determines, love sets, love sets limits, excuse me, on, on our work, what we may do, what we may not do. And supreme love for God shows us what we may do in our work, what sorts of occupations we may and may not have, which can be inherently sinful or, or inherently glorifying to God. And love for neighbor determines how far we ought to go with every effort that we extend. This does not have to do with just your occupation, just your vocation, just your, your job week to week, your career. This has to do with every effort of your life. We thought, think about stewarding our gifts and our abilities. So often we go straight to the job thing, straight to the career thing. But we forget all the other moments in, in between in our lives and along the way. We all of us have relationships with people at work that, that go outside of our job descriptions. We all of us have relationships with our neighbors in our communities, uh, maybe our, uh, in our apartment complexes or wherever you may happen to live that go beyond just our, our mortgage payments, right? We have relationships and interactions with people on every level. Some of you have interactions with customers at your place of business that go beyond your job description or maybe the, the, the call of customer service there. But all of us have uh, places and times in life where we're called to extend effort into different areas and to steward the abilities and opportunities that God has given to us for his glory. And so supreme love for God teaches us what we may do and love for neighbor determines how far we should go with the Good Samaritan as our example. So friend, knowing that you are worth more than your work and knowing that supreme love for God and sacrificial love for neighbor sets limits upon your work, then view your work, view every effort of your life intending to give every effort for God's glory, intending to use every exercise of your body and gifts and ability and skills and talents for the fame of God. Turn with me to Paul's letter to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3. It's a little bit further forward or towards the back of your Bible. It's uh, right after Philippians and just before 1 Thessalonians. In Colossians 3, well, in the whole letter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae to instruct them on what sort of lives they ought to live, but particularly how they ought to deal with um, some certain wrong teachings about who Jesus was at that time. And he spends the first couple of chapters giving biblical foundation, giving theology for what we understand about 
Christ and who he is and, and what he is like and our relationship to him. And then in the last couple of chapters of Colossians, Paul moves to more practical matters, what we ought to do in light of knowing who Jesus is. And so in Colossians 3, beginning of verse 22, he writes this, bond servants, some of your translations may say slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, that, that being the inheritance of eternal life. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. In the context of this passage in all of Colossians is Paul's encouragement to the church at Colossae in other areas of their life, and specifically in the church, there were uh, in the church at Colossae, those who were believers, who were Christians, followers of Jesus, but who were also bondservants, who were slaves. Better contemporary term, because when we think about slavery, we so often think of the uh, 16th and, and, and 17th and, and even into the 18th century uh, of the United States um, of, of, of chattel slavery and the African slave trade and this kind of um, impressed, forced slavery. And slavery in, uh, in Paul's day in Rome was not quite the same thing. It was more like indentured servitude. So you have a debt that you cannot pay, so you, so you uh, essentially make a commitment to work for the person who, who you owe a debt to as their servant until such a time as that debt that you owed was paid off. So it wasn't like conquered peoples being brought in shackles here. But there were some of those people who had maybe debts that they couldn't pay, who had given their, their, their lives in service to others to pay off a debt. And to these, Paul is speaking. The question raised by Christianity in its earliest days was whether it would be a religion of rebellion. Would Christians be those who then rebel against the Roman Empire and rebel against the emperor and rebel against every social institution of the day? It was a serious question for believing masters who had slaves in their house. As a Christian master of slaves or of bond servants, how should I relate to them, and, and should I expect them to rebel against me? Is, is that what Christianity is going to teach them? So Paul addresses the church at Colossae, among whom some were masters and some were slaves. And while Paul nowhere commends the practice of slavery, he nowhere says, this is a good thing, you all should do it. He doesn't even commend the practice of indentured servitude. He does speak directly to those who find themselves in the middle of it. So here, to slaves, to bond servants. He says that rather than rebelling against your masters, you should be obedient to them. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And that they should do this not for the benefit of being seen by others, to be seen as people pleasers. Instead, they are to obey their masters under whose authority they serve with sincerity of heart out of a genuine fear, reverence, awe for the Lord. Their work, like all work, is not ultimately for their earthly masters, Paul teaches, but every effort of their lives is expended at the pleasure of their heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He says, do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. You have a human master, but you're not working for him. You're not working to please him. You're working to please God. So work in a way that pleases God. Knowing that 
from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So then, as all work in our lives, every effort that we expend, whether it's in our job or whether it's in relationships related to our job or in our home or with our neighbors, every effort of our lives is ultimately, as every effort of our lives is meant ultimately to be done unto the Lord as our heavenly master, all work, every effort should be done heartily and with enthusiasm to the very best of our ability. Making the, use, making the best use of time, as we saw last week, to make the most of every opportunity that God gives to us. Because in working well on earth, we demonstrate our love for God and our love for others in ways that earn heavenly and spiritual rewards that we will not see until we are face-to-face with Christ. Paul closes then with a simple statement that our work, every effort of our lives, is not done in service to human masters ultimately, but in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know how to steward every effort of your life? You want to know how to make the best use of the gifts, the skills, the talents, abilities, the education that God has given to you, allowed you to acquire? You want to know how to make the best of of every job situation or every career path that you may find yourself in, every, uh, every class that you may attend in college? or in high school, then start here by determining to see your every moment of work as an act of worship done for God's glory. How do you steward every effort of your life for God's glory? Well, first you have to see that every effort of your life is meant to be used for his glory. Begin by viewing your life through the lens of the gospel that God has redeemed you from sin to be right with him through faith in Jesus, to be his image bearer in all the best ways in the world. And with every effort, every moment, every skill and ability of your life to bring glory to God. Start there. Correct your vision. Put gospel glasses on when you go to work each day. Put gospel glasses on when you get out of bed each morning to interact with your children Put gospel glasses on when you're talking with your neighbor about the height of the weeds in his yard. (laughs) Determine to see your every moment of work as an act of worship done for God's glory. And then and only then will you you be able to to really steward, to really use in the most God-glorifying ways all of the the abilities, skills, talents, strengths that he has given to you. Now, like our Apostle Paul friend set a foundation, a theological foundation for what we ought to believe about work and our efforts, and I would like to build upon that with some practical exhortation. Now, I do not believe that I'm inspired by the Holy Spirit and that my words are infallible and inerrant as the Apostle Paul's are. So know that this is some human wisdom based on scripture and that I may not be entirely right, but in your effort to do everything this week and the rest of your life as an act of worship for the glory of God, then determine in your mind to do at least one of these four things this week. And they're listed in your worship guide and you'll see them on the screen behind me. First of all, see every moment of work as an act of worship by working with gratitude for the vocation that you have. By being grateful for whatever job God has given to you. Be thankful for your gifting. Be thankful for the talents that God has given to you. 
Be thankful for the skills and the training that he has allowed you to acquire, whether through formal education or through vocational education. And work with gratitude for whatever situation God has placed you in, for whatever career he has, he has given to you, for whatever job he has given to you at this time. Staying in Colossians in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Work with gratitude, giving thanks to God for all that he has given to you. Work with gratitude for, your, for the job that you have this week. Second, throughout your week this week, having gospel glasses on, reflect on how the mundane parts of your life may actually, do actually serve to bring God glory. With gospel glasses on, reflect on how the mundane may glorify God. If you're a plumber, what you do and your job shows and you can show in your work a supreme love for God and a sacrificial love for neighbor. Knowing that God has created man in his image to, to flourish on this earth, to care for the world, to, to, to be well, and knowing that God has gifted you uh, with the ability to facilitate the elimination of wastewater. Do it knowing that you, can, you are doing good things for others as a plumber. Seriously. It's not just a job for you to get by with. But in love for God and who he's made us to be and knowing that he loves our well-being, your job as a plumber serves the well-being of other human beings. And so love God as you clean toilets, praise the Lord, and I'm happy to pay you for it because you have a skill and ability that is helpful to my livelihood and that of so many others. Attorneys, lawyers can love both God and man. This isn't the start of a joke. There's no punchline. <laughs> Knowing that God is just and that he loves justice, attorneys, lawyers can do their work with reverence to a, a, a just God who sees and knows all and judges justly. And they can love neighbor in their work by doing just work, by dealing justly with others, by dealing fairly in court, by giving the very best defense for the person who, who deserves one, if you are a defense lawyer, by bringing all of justice to bear upon those uh, that God has given the authority to the government to exercise upon those who are the rightful recipients of, just, uh, of justice. Stay-at-home parents, moms especially, who, who often work and do so much at the home. See how your life, how that vocation, I mean, being a stay-at-home parent is not just uh, like a thing you do because you have no other skills, right? In fact, I, some of the most skilled and most gifted people I've ever known in my life are stay-at-home parents Amen. who are like CEOs and CFOs and CIOs and C-whatever-Os, fill in with any other, and they do it all well with love and grace for their, for their children, and, um, and it's just, it's mind-blowing, but as stay-at-home parents, out of supreme love for God, knowing that he has gifted to you a family to care for and to love and to nurture and to raise, out of supreme love for God, love your children sacrificially, leading them to know Christ as Lord. Some of you are salesmen. Salesmen, consider how you may love God most and love neighbor sacrificially in your job. 
Some of you are IT professionals. You're, you're keeping open the information superhighways of the world uh, upon which so many of us are, are, are dependent upon. See how God who knows all has, has gifted us with the ability to manage information this way. And in loving God who knows all things, you can manage information for the benefit of other people in your job this week. Put your gospel glasses on to see how the mundane things of your life may glorify God. Students, out of supreme love for God, you are entering into a new uh, stage, a new season of your life, a very exciting one where God is going to place you in situations that are way beyond your, your uh, um, uh, I lost the word, your training and, and preparedness to this point. He's going to stretch you and, and challenge you with competing uh, viewpoints and, and ideologies from the world. As you go to school, have first and foremost in all of your studies a supreme love for God, the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God of the universe who has saved you by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Love him most, serve him first, and then love your guts out the people around you, leading them to Christ. Reflect with gospel glasses on how the mundane may glorify God this week. Third, practical point. Use your vocation for gospel witness. Use your job, use your occupation, use whatever free time, even the, maybe the time you have in retirement, that's like a vocation too. Some of the busiest people and hardest working people I've ever met in my life are retired folks. Use your vocation for gospel witness. Look, you don't have to be a pastor to do deliberate spiritual good for others through sharing the gospel. I'll say that again, because I think only two of you heard that. (laughs) You don't have to be a pastor. In fact, you ought not be a pastor just to do deliberate spiritual good to others through sharing the gospel. We read in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has gifted the church with uh, prophets, evangelists, pastors, shepherd teachers for equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. You are to be equipped by your pastors to be gospel sharers. And I pray by God's grace, he's using me to to equip you in that way week to week. But you don't have to be a pastor to do deliberate spiritual good to others by sharing the gospel. Know that God has you in the vocation that he has you in for the expansion of his kingdom there. View your job, view your occupation, view your hobby, view your your recreational clubs as opportunities for gospel witness, as the mission field that God has entrusted to you in whatever stage of life that you're in. Use your vocation for gospel witness. Pray that God would give you opportunities for that. Fourth and finally, so work with gratitude for the vocation you have. Reflect on how the mundane may glorify God. Use your vocation for gospel witness and then steward every effort of your life. Fourth, by putting your abilities and efforts to work in service to the body of Christ. And God has gifted you and enabled you for the job that you have. Some of us have jobs in the church. Most of us have jobs outside of the church. None of them is better than any other. None is more holy than any other. In the life of the Christian, there is no sacred secular divide. And so we're to use all that God has given to us, extending every effort for his glory in whatever situation we may find ourselves. But most certainly, use the gifts that God has given to you. Put those things to work for the body of Christ. And by that, I don't mean just come and volunteer at church more. Although for some of you, maybe that is what you need to hear today. 
Paul says to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, these, these words. He says, For the, by, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we who are members of the church, for as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually, members of one another. That's pretty cool, thing that we belong to one another, we're united to one another through our faith in Christ as he brings us together with our diverse gifts and abilities. Paul continues in Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Doesn't that sound like the master in the parable of the talents who goes away and he gives talents to his servants, each according to their ability? Having gifts that differ according to the grace of God given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, if God has gifted you as one who teaches, then do so in, his, in your teaching. To the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Dear friend, not all of us are gifted the same, and that by God's design, so that in the diversity of his body, we may have many skills to meet all the collective needs of our body and the collective gospel needs of our community in our city. However God has made you, he has made you in his image to bring him glory through using all of who you are and who he has made you to be. So do not wish then that you could be like this person or like that. Do not wish then that you could have a different sort of spiritual or natural gifting. Do not wish then that you could have a different job for all that God has given to you. He has given to you according to his grace and according to your ability and what he intends for you to do for his glory in your life. Dear friend, you are, more, you are worth more than your work. You are an image bearer of God. And so let love of God, supreme love of God, and sacrificial love of neighbor set limits, set boundaries, set uh, uh, signposts for you, guiding and guarding your work that you may give every effort of your life in all that you do with thanksgiving for God's glory. Let us pray.